46 through to 56. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her for about about three months, and returned to her home. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what do we know about Mary's parents, about her family? The Roman Catholic Church has a lot of legends and mythologies drawn from spurious, from fake uh, gospels and fake writings that came up in the centuries after the New Testament. And from those myths, they talk about St. Joachim and St. Anna, the supposed father and mother of Mary. But there's no biblical basis for those myths. Is there anything in the scripture that tells us something about the mom and the dad of, of Mary? Well, if, if Luke chapter 3, if the genealogy there is, as many scholars believe it could be, the genealogy of Christ through Mary, through his mother's line, then perhaps we might know her dad's name, Heli. But that's still under a lot of discussion by the scholars. But what we do know about Mary's mom and dad, about her family, we can see in Mary herself. The Holy Spirit presents Mary to us as a woman, a young woman of faith. She is faithful and believing, and she has obviously been brought up in a household and in a life saturated with the Word of God and with the worship of God. She is betrothed, as is common in that time at a very young age. She's perhaps in her mid-teens, mid to late teens. She's still quite young because in that time, women would get married earlier than today. She's betrothed, and so she's in a relationship which is kind of between what we know as engagement and marriage. It's stronger than engagement. It's a commitment to marriage which needs to be broken by divorce, but yet she is not with her husband. And so she's living the life of a faithful, a pious, a godly young woman preparing to embrace the calling which God gives to most women, and that is to be a giver and a nurturer of life. And then when the angel comes into her life, we see her there in, in chapter 1 of, of Luke, we see that she is a perceptive young woman. The, the angel greets her, and you look there in verse 29, she, she, she's troubled. What, what does this mean? And she tries to discern what sort of greeting 
this may be. She's a thoughtful young woman. And then when the angel announces to her the gospel of God made flesh and says that she is the chosen one to bear the Messiah, notice in her response that she understands what's going on. She knows the ancient prophecies. She knows the Messiah has been promised since Genesis chapter 3. She knows the Messiah is the great son of David. And so she doesn't say to the angel, what are you talking about? Can you explain more? She understands. She just has a very practical question. She's a very practical, godly young woman. She says, well, I'm a virgin, and from what I know of life is that to have a baby, you need a man and a woman, and I'm not yet... I'm not yet in a consummated marriage. So how is, how is this going to work? She has a very practical question. She's expecting the promises of the Old Testament to be fulfilled, and she's just asking the angel, well, how, how is it going to work? And then the angel answers that this will be a special, miraculous, and creative act of God in the Virgin Mary, in her womb. And then her response again is one of great piety and faith. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. A pious, perceptive, practical, and proactive young woman, because what she does now, she's been told by the angel, there's another miracle going on as well, which evokes the ancient miracles of of women far beyond their childbearing years receiving a blessing of a child from the Lord in a miraculous way. That's happened to Elizabeth. And that's a sign that something's going on here. And so what does she do? She says, well, I've heard the word. I've believed the word. And now I want to see the sign. And she goes, she arose and went with haste into the hill country to the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth. She's not just sitting around saying, well, I have no idea what's happening. She wants to see the sign which confirms the word that she has already believed. And as she comes into that home, and as Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, and filled with that spirit-filled child in her womb, cries out, verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth recognizes Mary as a believer that she's believed the word of God. And here we have, there's so much going on here, but here we have, compared to to Zechariah, we have the total opposite, don't we? We have the, the undoing of the fall, where in the fall, the woman believed the lie, and the, the man went right along with it. Here we have the man still not believing yet. He's incredulous and he's punished for it. But by God's mercy, the woman who was first to fall is the first to believe the undoing of the fall. And she leads the way here with her faith, which puts Zachariah's faith or lack of faith to shame. So Mary is a humble believer. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. 
that time has now come. All the ancient promises from Genesis 3, 15 onwards throughout the Old Testament, the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promises throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures through the prophets, that a virgin shall conceive, that a shoot shall come forth from the stump of Jesse. All of these things are coming true. Mary understands that. She's heard the word, she's believed the word, she sees the sign. She sees her elderly relative pregnant, and that confirms, as signs do, as baptism will do after this sermon, that confirms and testifies to the truth of the word. And so what does she do? Well, she does what believers do when they hear the word and when they see the confirming sign, she worships. She worships. That's what she's doing in our text. She, she worships. She's, she sings with all of her heart to God, and it is a song full of Scripture. You know, if this was a Hollywood production, Mary would have a, an intense moment of self-reflection. here and say, well, what's this going to look like for me? How do I feel about this? And she would share her feelings and her concerns and her anxieties. What is this going to do to my life? What does it mean for me? But brothers and sisters, that's the way of the world to be focused on us. But Mary is a believer, and her song focuses on him. She doesn't quote directly a lot of scriptures, but her whole song is just full of the whole content of the gospel of Christ and, and the law, the prophets, and the writings, the style and the structure of her song is, is reflecting Old Testament poetry. You see that. You know how Old Testament poetry works, right? Hebrew poetry, it's kind of, it's got this parallelism where the, the second part of the sentence or the verse either reinforces the first part or expands it or is an antithesis, a contrast to it. My soul magnifies the Lord. Let me say it another way. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. This is very Hebrew, this way of poetry. And it shows that she knows her Bible. She knows her Bible very well. So let's look at these verses together. If you have your Bible open, it'll be easier for you to follow the sermon as we go through the verses. My soul magnifies, says Mary. My soul, she's not just coming to worship, singing with her lips. She's not just going through the motions, but her heart, her soul, her inner being is engaged as she worships God with all that she is. That's what believers do when they worship. We don't just sing mindlessly with our minds wandering but we sing with our soul. And her spirit is engaged. Now, when the scriptures use soul and spirit in the same context, the soul is the, the, the inner person, the, the emotions and, and the, the depth of the being. The, the, the spirit would refer in this context more to the mind. It's, it's thoughtful. It's not mindless worship, but she understands the truths which drive her to worship. So soul and spirit, all of her being, she worships. My soul magnifies, and that's where we get the, the typical church name for this song, the Magnificat, which is in Latin, magnifies. My soul magnifies, that word is magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. This is 
the instruction of the apostle in James chapter 5, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. When we see God's truth, when we hear God's truth, when we see him testify and confirm uh, his truth, when we, when we understand and believe God's truth, it must drive us to worship. And so she worships. My soul magnifies the Lord. Now, did you notice as we read through chapter 1 how many times the Lord is mentioned? And every time the Lord is mentioned, it's referring to God. The Lord, the Lord, the angel of the Lord, it's always referring to God. And then she comes into Elizabeth's house and, and Elizabeth says, Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The mother of my Lord. This is the Old Testament word Adonai. The New Testament word, Greek word Kyrios. The Lord is God. And you, Mary, are the mother of the Lord. Now, Romanists would say, wow, that makes you so important. You are Mary full of grace and you're almost like a a, a type of Christ that you can be not a mediator, but a media, mediatrix, a female mediator. But Mary has none of that. When she understands what's going on, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. She worships her unborn son as God. She worships him. As God, my Savior. Mary will have nothing of Romish myths and fables about her immaculate conception that she is some kind of goddess or queen of the world. Mary knows that she needs a Savior because she knows that she is a sinner. And that's her highest thought. Her highest thought is, I have to magnify God because God is saving me. And she's comparing the greatness of God with who she is. Who am I? Where do I come from? Look at verse 48. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. I am no one. And that's true worship requires us to go through that bowing down and that confession of who we are outside of Christ and without Christ, that we are nothing, that all we are is our unworthy worthy sinners unless God has mercy on us. That's the whole shape of the liturgy. Every Sunday we, we first confess our sins and we come in to his presence knowing that only in Christ do we have hope. He has looked on the humble state of his servant he is everything, and I am nothing. Now, that's, that's an amazing confession of our sister Mary, because she also recognizes the second part of verse 48, that she has an incredible privilege here to be carrying the Messiah in her womb. From be, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for all eternity. Whenever we see Mary... In the new heavens and the new earth, we'll see, well, that's, that's the mother of Jesus. There's our sister Mary who carried in her womb God made flesh. That 
glorious privilege and honor will always be hers. And so we don't overreact to Romish fables by despising Mary. We honor her as the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. But why is she blessed? Well, look at verse 49. They will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me. I will be called blessed not because I'm great, not because I'm filled with all kinds of grace that I can dole out to sinners, but I will be called blessed because he is mighty and he has done great things for me. That is the confession of every believer. He has done great things for me. That tells us something about Mary. She, she's incredibly privileged to carry in her womb the Messiah. But that would, that would be meaningless for her as an individual if she did not carry in the first place God in her heart. She's a believer. She carries God in her heart. She believes, she trusts, and she worships. She doesn't say, I am a self-made person. But she recognizes that she is a God-made person. That's what believers do. I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior. I am not blessed by any virtue that I have. I am blessed because he has done great things for me. And so we don't worship Mary, but we follow her example in this song. We praise God for his work in and through Mary and for his work in and through people in general. We don't, we don't praise the people who God uses as instruments to bring us blessing. We praise the God who blesses. And as you look through this song, notice how Mary is not pointing at herself the whole time. He has, look at all these times that, that it speaks about him. He who is mighty has done great things. His mercy, he has shown strength. He has scattered, he has brought down, he has exalted, he filled the hungry, he sent away the rich, he helped his servant, he spoke to our fathers. It's all about him. And that tells us again who Mary is and what kind of an upbringing she's had, brothers and sisters. She's had an, a godly upbringing. She knows God. She knows the word of God. And she knows how to worship God. And she acknowledges in verse 50 that his mercy is not just some kind of automatic thing. You just flip a switch. It's okay, you're born in the line of the covenant, so... Everything's fine. She understands one of the key truths of the gospel, that his mercy is for those who fear him, that the promises of the covenant come to us and are embraced in the way of faith. And that's exactly what she's doing. She's receiving the promises in the way of faith. He has shown strength with his arm, she says, and now she starts describing the way of the Lord and his great redemptive and mighty acts of salvation throughout the Old Testament period. And there's a, an echo here of Isaiah chapter 63, verse 5, where the Lord says, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. <clears throat> so my own arm brought me salvation. 
there's one thing which the scriptures drive home to us, is that the, the power of man is zero to work salvation, but that the arm, the mighty arm of God, works salvation. And salvation is saving the humble and destroying the proud. You remember the judgment of God upon an arrogant and sinful world and the flood that all the thoughts and intentions of their heart were constantly wicked. That's what the essence of sin is, to say, I don't need God. I don't need God. Tell me what to do. I can run my own life. I can desire. I can choose what I think is good, and I can determine good and evil. And the gospel is that God comes and just wipes that away, destroys the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. We're reminded of Babel, where God just destroyed all the plans of the wicked as they gathered and conspired together against him. What she's saying here evokes the song of Hannah, where Hannah says very, very similar things in her song. It evokes the teaching and the, the confession of the psalmist in Psalm 2, that as the kings of the earth and all the rich and the powerful and the mighty, the people that think they're really important, they gather together, they conspire against the Lord and his anointed. God laughs at them, and he smashes them to pieces with a rod of iron as he sets his Christ, his anointed, his Messiah on the throne of the universe. So verse 52, he spe she speaks about bringing down the mighty and exalting those of humble estate. And isn't that something which the Lord has been driving home to us throughout the scriptures ever since the fall, that, that he always turns things around. And, and there's, a, there's a reason for turning things around. If something's upside down, to fix it, you need to turn it around, right? If, if, you, if, you, if you come to a vehicle on the side of the road and it's flipped over, then you need to turn it around so it's the right way up again. And so God is teaching us that throughout history as so often he passes over the firstborn and chooses the second. Throughout all the Genesis accounts, we see that happening over and over and over. He chooses those who are despised, and he sends away those who are self-satisfied. That's exactly what Mary is reminding us of here, that that is the character of God. He doesn't choose for himself people that say, you know, I am such a great person. I bet you that God simply can't imagine living without me. I'm such a, an amazing, valuable person. God chooses those who understand that they are unworthy sinners and that they have no hope apart from his mercy and his grace, that they come with empty hands. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, the rich he has sent away empty. You know, there's Mary. She's just a working class peasant from the northeast, kind of the backwaters of Israel. It's kind of like being somebody that has a very menial job and a very low pay working in Labrador. I mean, how much impact are you going to have on the world if you're working a, a very poorly paid job in some tiny little town in Labrador? But, but Mary understands things through the eyes of faith. And she understands that all the rich and the powerful people there in Jerusalem, the 
king and, and all the religious leaders with all their wealth and all their corruption, she realizes that they're empty. Because to be full, to be truly full and satisfied can only happen when we are fed with the bread of heaven. And even though Mary has nothing, she has no power, she has no wealth, she has no status in the eyes of men, Mary understands that she has been filled with good things. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Her life is full. Even though the rich people in Jerusalem would mock her as a, an insignificant peasant, but her life is full because she has Christ. She's filled with Christ. And brothers and sisters, in a world which, which loves wealth and power and status, how we need to long for the Lord to work this in us that we would be satisfied only in the bread of heaven, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it that we're so eager to be rich? Why is it that so many young people, even Christian young people, their dream is to be a famous YouTuber or a famous person on the internet or to have massive amounts of likes on Instagram? That's not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is to be filled with that which is food indeed, the bread of heaven. Now, as she's describing God here and what he does and how he saves, she's describing God as she knows him through the word, through the Old Testament revelation in his mighty acts of redemption. And now in verses 54 and 55, she comes to the point and she confesses that, well, all of those promises and all those manifestations of how God saves, they're coming to fulfillment now in the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Messiah. God has done it. He has helped his servant Israel. He has remembered his mercy. He has kept his promises. He has fulfilled his word. Now think about that. Mary is still living the same life that she lived. She's still a person without power, without privilege, without wealth, without status. Nothing has changed in her life. The promises that God gave to Abraham were promises of a land and a people that a great king would come from him, that the Messiah would be born from his line, that there would be blessing to the nations, that it would change the world. But Mary's, she's seen the angel, and she's talked to Elizabeth. But for the rest, she's still a simple, poor, peasant girl. If she walks into Jerusalem, nobody's going to look at her twice. There in Jerusalem, in all of Israel, instead of, instead of the land belonging to God's people, the Romans are in charge. They're oppressing God's people. They, they, they're not even in charge in their own country. Then the king, so-called king of the Jews, he's actually an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, and he is wicked and corrupt and oppressive. 
And then the religious leaders of the country are wicked and corrupt and greedy, and they exploit the poor. And the house of David, well, where's the house of David? Well, they're so insignificant that they're just a bunch of peasants, so poor and so unknown that nobody looks at them twice. So Mary does not see with her eyes the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Abraham. She doesn't see it with her eyes. But she sees it with the eyes of faith. She believes it. She's sure, she's convinced of things hoped for and things unseen. That's what faith is. She believes the word. She believes the word that she has heard. She believes the word testified to her in the sign of Elizabeth's pregnancy. She believes the word that she carries in her womb and in her heart. And that's enough for her to break out into praise. Now, brothers and sisters, look what she says there in verse 55. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, to his offspring, that's us. Romans chapter 4 says that Abraham is the father of believers. We're believers. Abraham is our father. He spoke to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God's covenant promises in Christ come to us as children of Abraham. We know a lot more than Mary knew. We know all of the New Testament. We know the fulfillment of the promises that were testified to in detail in the Gospels and the Epistles. The Word of God has come to us through messengers of God. And we know the glorious riches of the mystery of the gospel in a way far deeper, more detailed than Mary ever knew. We know the glorious riches of the mystery of the gospel, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So if Mary, with the little bit that she could see and understand, could break out into praise and worship, how much more we should be able to magnify the Lord with all of our soul and to rejoice in God our Savior with all of our spirit. And so in verse 56, she, she stays three months. And of course, that would bring her to the birth of John. The Spirit doesn't give us all the details, but it's quite likely that when little baby John was born, then Mary went off home to wait the six months which remained for her time to give birth. She returned to her home. But what kind of a life does Mary return to? Here she celebrated the fulfillment of God's promises of salvation in Christ. But what does it mean for her? Well, it means a life of trouble. It means fleeing to Egypt with her little baby and her husband. It means hearing that the children in the neighborhood were massacred by King Herod. It means moving back to Nazareth and having other children and, and living for years and years and years with a busy household and trying to make ends meet, like a typical working family, with an extra challenge that one of the kids never sins. That's going to be really, really tough to have a child which never sins. Imagine being a parent or a sibling. That would have been a, a challenge for the family. And that goes on for decades. Just this simple 
life of working and living as a poor and believing family. That goes on for decades, and, and after about 30 years, it ends up in her seeing her son, her firstborn son, tortured to death. That's what's waiting for Mary. That's the life that God has ordained for her. So her life is not more glorious because of the gospel. It's more painful. It's more difficult. Very little reason for Mary to celebrate with human eyes. But when we look with the eyes of faith, we see that God is at work, that God is faithful, that God is keeping his word, that God is fulfilling his promises through the joys and the pains, through the blessings and through the afflictions. And sometimes, brothers, the joy is in the pain, and the pain is in the joy. Sometimes the, the blessings bring affliction, and sometimes the afflictions are the blessing. But in all of it, as Mary did, so must we. Focus on the Christ. Christ is come. Christ in me. Christ is born. Christ is God. Christ saves. God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. We focus on Christ. We focus on what God is doing in Christ. And when we do that, then we can say with Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Amen.